Today's scripture comes from Luke 16, 1 through 13. He also said to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said of to himself, What shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I've decided what to do so that when I'm removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So, summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? He said, A hundred measures of oil. He said to him, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. Then he said to another, And how much do you owe? He said, A hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, Take your bill and write eighty. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into their eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you to the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right. Well, would you now bow your heads and join me in prayer? Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we ask now that you would speak to us and that you would encourage us with your word. Lord, we have finished living in this world these past six days. We have been confronted with so many things. And Lord, we ask now that you would feed us, for we are hungry. Our soul is weary, and we need the nourishment that only your word can provide. God, would you strengthen us and empower us, for we ask all these things in Jesus' name, amen. Can we have the first quote up, please? Christ either deceived mankind by conscious fraud, or he himself was deluded and self-deceived, or he was divine. There is no getting out of this trilemma. It is inexorable. Those words were first spoken by a Scottish minister by the name of John Duncan. And years later, the great C.S. Lewis, the Christian apologist, popularized this very notion in his book, Mere Christianity. And essentially what he's saying in this quote is that when it comes to Jesus Christ, you only have one of three options in terms of how you choose to view him, right? The trilemma. Jesus, if he existed, was either crazy, he was either a con man, or he was the Christ, God in the flesh, the trilemma. Now, given in our culture today, the last option is usually not the option of most, namely that he really was God in the flesh, that he was the Christ. You're left with the first two. Jesus was either crazy or he was a common. And given that most people really doubt that a crazy person could inspire movement, which now comes out to being the largest religion in the world, more people today are starting to contemplate that Jesus Christ, if he actually existed, was most likely a con man. This is starting to gain traction in our secular society today. Case in point, just a few uh, years ago, I came across a book on Amazon entitled, no joke, Jesus was a con man who pissed off the Romans. 
a man by the name of Theodore Duncan. And the whole premise of his book is this very idea. Listen to what he says in a portion of the book. He writes this, quote, The miracles that Jesus allegedly performed were, in fact, all professionally performed by history's greatest con man. Jesus had 12 accomplices to help him pull off his various scams. They toured from city to city and town to town to perfect these amazing BS performances. Since word spread slowly in these times and the writers of these scams were the same people helping to perform them, it is only fitting that they were riddled with an amazing amount of audacity to spice things up. Hmm. Now I know for most of us Christians in here, you know, this book written by some obscure man who obviously has a personal axe to grind against Christianity really wouldn't unsettle our faiths in here, right? It's going to take something more authoritative than a person like this, right? To really cause us to ever think that Jesus was actually a con man. But what if the person who was trying to tell you this was not some obscure person that we've never heard of, written some self-published book on Amazon? What if it was actually a person who was well-versed in the Bible, who was a biblical scholar with PhD behind his name, teaching at a very illustrious school, right, to convince you that Jesus was a comment, and the book that he pointed to wasn't some book that he wrote himself, but the very book that you and I would look to to deny the very idea that Jesus was a con man. If this story sounds a little bit too real, that's because it is a real story. It happened to me when I was an undergraduate at UNC Chapel Hill. I took a New Testament introductory course. And the TA that was assigned to me was an atheist but brilliant biblical scholar. And he said, John, Jesus was a con man. I was like, what are you talking about? There's no proof. In fact, I'll show you, he says, in your own Bible. And the very passage that he turned to was Luke 16. How else do you explain Jesus is telling his disciples to be a con man like this wicked, shrewd manager? What do you have to say to that? And I really had nothing to say at all. I never encountered this parable. Maybe this is your first time encountering this parable as well, because when you read it, you're just like, what? It just makes no sense. It's so unusual. And so I really struggled with that. Well, in seminary, I still didn't know how to properly interpret it. Well, As the years went by and as I had opportunities to study the Bible more deeply, I was able to address this very parable. And I'd like to share that with you as we look at today's story that Jesus tells in Luke chapter 16. And the way we're going to do that is by looking at it from this framework of shrewdness. Okay, So with that in mind, three things I'd like to share with you from the standpoint of shrewdness. Okay, Number one, the reason why we need to be shrewd. The reason why we need to be shrewd. Number two, the type of shrewdness we need to develop. And finally, the way to develop this type of shrewd or shrewdness. Okay, So these are the three things that we're going to take a look at as we look at this very cryptic, very easily misunderstood story of Jesus. Let's begin. First, the reason we need to be shrewd. Now, the parable we're looking at today, again, is considered the most controversial parable that Jesus ever told. Okay? Biblical scholars are unanimous in saying that this is the most difficult parable that Jesus ever taught and therefore the most difficult to understand and apply. Why? Well, to begin to answer that question, let me, quick do, let me quickly do a recap of the story so that you get a full idea of what's happening. Okay? Jesus tells this parable centering on two main characters. There's this rich man, also known as the master, and then there is his servant, the manager. Okay? And as background characters, there are two people who owe the master money. 
money that this manager is hired to collect on behalf of this master. But as we come to discover, this servant was a terrible, terrible manager, something that some of you professionals in here, I'm sure, can relate to with some of the managers that you've had to work for or work with. Right? This man was a terrible manager, and that is usually the case. The master hears about his servant's poor performance and basically says, you're fired. Right? Clean out your desk and give back to me those accounts, those bills that you were responsible to collect on my behalf. Now, it's at this point, the servant, the manager, is freaking out because now he's in a very crisis situation. Because by being unemployed, he is now facing the real possibility of being impoverished, of living on the streets, of having to beg for simple things like food and drink. Okay, And so with this pressure in mind, what does he do? He takes the remaining time that he has, a small one at that, as being manager before he finally is no longer the manager. And he interacts with the various people who owed his master money. And he starts cutting deals with them to where he reduces the amount of money that they owe their master significantly. Significantly. Now, let me ask you a question. How would you feel if you were the master of the story, if you were the rich man? Let's say you find out that one of your employees who you have fed, who you have housed, who you have provided employment for was not only bad and therefore you fired them, but then you come to discover after firing them, he's going around to the people who owe you money and reducing the amount of money that they owe to you. How would you respond? How would you react? Right? I would venture to guess that you, as well as I, would probably do something very, very, very illegal, right? Something very, very violent to the point where you would probably kill or murder this guy, right? Because it sounds like this this manager is really trying to stick it to his boss for firing him, which sometimes sadly happens in our world today, right? And yet, we're perplexed at what the manager does. And this is where the parable gets very confusing. Listen to how the, the manager, or excuse me, not the manager, the, the boss, the rich man, how he responds when he finds out what his manager did. Verse eight, the master commended the dishonest mas- manager for his shrewdness. Now that is weird. So weird. Instead of wanting to kill the guy, he commends the guy. Instead of wanting to hurt the manager, he honors the manager for his shrewdness. That is just weird, way beyond weird. But you know what? That's not nearly to the level of weird as to the lesson that Jesus wants us to take away, which he tells us in verse 9. Listen to what Jesus says as the moral of the story comes out. He says, and I tell you, this is Jesus talking, make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. What? Did we just read that correctly? Did we just read Jesus telling us that we should behave like this shrewd manager, this man who comes across as a real wicked fellow, this manipulative piece of slime? What is going on? You see, it's because of questions like this that naturally come out when you read the passage at the surface level that people say, this is a very difficult parable to understand because it sounds like Jesus is commending us to be a bunch of con men, right? And if that's the case, then maybe Jesus himself was a con man himself. What kind of Lord, what kind of king would commend his servants to behave this way? But here's the thing. 
If you take a closer study as to what this parable is actually saying, we'll find to see that there's no controversy at all. There's nothing crazy about it, and let me explain why. Read again with me the first four verses of our passage, starting in verse 1, where we read, He also said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, what shall I do, since my master is taking the management away from me? I am not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do, so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their homes or houses. Now, within these four verses, we see the manager undergoing an incredible transformation, right? Right before our eyes, he turns into a shrewd person. Look again at how Jesus first describes him at the end of verse 1. The guy was a dude who just wasted his master's possessions, right? He was a servant who was unfaithful. He was not doing the work that he was supposed to do adequately. Now, just from that statement alone, however, we can't figure out how he was misusing his master's possessions, right? But if you think about it, there's really one of two options. Either A, he was really an incompetent worker, right? He might have been honest, he might have been hardworking, but because he wasn't a good fit for the job and because he didn't know what he was doing, he, because of his incompetence, he was misusing his master's position. That's one possibility, right? Or it could be that this person was taking advantage of the perks and privileges that came with his job that he was indulging in all of these possessions that the master entrusted him with to the point that he was not doing his job at all. And so here's the question. Which of these two options is it? Is it because he's incompetent or is it because he was indulgent? Well, I would like to argue it was because he was indulgent. Okay, and here's why. Look at what he says to himself at the end of verse three and pay special attention to the last statement that he says. Right? What shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I am not strong enough to die. And what? I am ashamed to beg. I am ashamed to beg. That is weird for him to say. This guy is in a life and death situation. He could potentially starve to death. He could be homeless, right? And you would think that in such a dire situation, his survival instincts would kick in to where it would override any sense of ego or, or pride being wounded to the point where he would feel shame to beg. And yet he says, no, even in that kind of a situation, I would be so ashamed to beg. Why? Well, could it be that the reason why he would feel shame is not because of his ego being bruised or because he's so prideful. Maybe it's because of the way that he shamelessly misused his master's resources. What if this servant went around basically abusing the position that he had and indulging on his master's resources all on himself, going around publicly, acting like he was a big deal, a big shot, a big baller, right? For everyone to see on display. And then those same people a few months later or a few days later, see him on the corner begging on the street to where everyone would notice, right? Can you imagine how difficult it would be for anyone to show any compassion to a guy like that? I mean, look again at what it says in verse 2. It says the master heard from others about how he was misusing his master's resources. So clearly, just by the way that he was living, he was drawing attention to himself about how he was misusing his master's stuff, his master's possessions, 
right? So here we begin to see that the reason why this guy was ashamed to beg wasn't because he had a big ego. It wasn't because he had wounded pride. It was because he knew that everyone else around him knew how he shamelessly abused his position. And now he was suffering the consequences of it to where no one would feel any compulsion, any compassion, any charity towards him. Because if they did, they would be ashamed, right? It's kind of like, how could you show charity to a guy like Kim Jong-un or Hitler? Shame on you for, for being so compassionate in that way, right? So he knew that option to beg was not an option for him at all. And now he understands, does he not, that now that he is confronted with the fact that he has to call into account to his master of what he has done, he becomes shrewd. Now, I'm going to explain in just a moment of what I mean by a shrewd person. But I just want you to notice a pattern here, a cause and effect. Before the servant is aware that he has to give an account to his master, he's not shrewd. He's lazy, right? After he is aware that he has to give an account to his master, right? He becomes shrewd, right? He becomes shrewd. Interesting, right? When there's no sense of having to give an account to a higher authority, there is no shrewdness. When there is a sense of having to give an account to a higher authority, there is shrewdness. What's the point? The point is this. The reason why Jesus commends the servant for being shrewd and hence why he wants his followers to follow that example is because he wants us to be aware of the fact that every single one of us will have to give an account to a higher authority to how we use the resources that are in our possessions. Let me say that again. The reason why Jesus commends the servant for his shrewdness and therefore why he wants us to follow that example is because he wants all of us in here to be aware of the fact that we will one day have to give an account to a higher authority, namely to God, to how we use the resources that we have in our possessions. That's why Jesus says we need to be shrewd as Christians because we need to live our lives with the assumption that this shrewd person now has. I have to give an account of all that I have. I have to give an account of all the material possessions, all the financial resources that I have to God, right? That's why he wants us to be shrewd because it assumes that everything that we have does not belong to us. We will one day have to face God and say, what have I done with your stuff? Let me show you. This is simply a reiteration of what scripture says over and over. For example, Psalm 24 verse 1, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all its people belong to him. This is something Pastor James said in his sermon last Sunday and what I said in the Sunday before. All of the things that we have, all of our material wealth, all of our financial resources, all of that belongs to God. None of it belongs to us to where we have no right to just indulge in the things that we think belong to us, but really doesn't because it belongs to God. We have no right to indulge in these things, right? But you will never, ever carry that assumption unless you are shrewd, right? Shrewdness assumes, according to Jesus, this reality that everything that you have is something that you one day will have to give an account to God for, right? And therefore keeps you from ever indulging in them just for yourself. Now, right about now, you're a little bit confused and you're scratching your heads. And if I had to venture a guess, what your confusion is in question form is probably this. How is it possible that a person who recognizes that everything belongs to God, not to them, and therefore they can't indulge selfishly, right, in the things that are in their stewardship, how can that mindset keep a person from being shrewd? Because usually when we think of a shrewd person, we think of someone who does 
the very opposite, right? A shrewd person will lie, he will manipulate so that, so that he can indulge in these things. But yet you're saying that when you're shrewd, you would not indulge? How do you explain that? And furthermore, Pastor John, you never address this very issue about why the boss commended the manager for his shrewdness. Because again, it sounded like he was trying to hurt the boss. Why would the boss be happy with that? Well, let me answer all those questions by going to my next point. The type of shrewd we need to develop. Read again with me, verse 5, all the way down to verse 7. So, summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? He said, A hundred measures of oil. He said to him, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, How much do you owe? He said, A hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, Take your bill and write 80. Now, again, these verses seem like that this guy is trying to hurt his boss right? Just trying to really, you know, screw him over for, for firing him like that by basically collecting less than what these people actually owed. But if you think about it, that makes no sense. Because think about what he's trying to do. Remember his goal. What is he trying to do? Verse four, I've decided what to do so that when I've been removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. In other words, this manager, he's trying to interact with these debtors in such a way to where they would feel compelled to be generous towards him by letting him stay in their homes after he gets kicked out of the master's house, right? But let me ask you, do you think these people would feel generous to this guy if they find out that they're participating in some sort of scheme to steal from the boss? In other words, do you think these people would want to feel generous towards a man who's essentially putting a target on their back, right, to the guy who they owe money to by accepting these reduced costs, right, without the permission of the master himself? No, right? So how are we to make sense of this idea of what's going on here? Well, listen to what one Bible scholar by the name of Craig Blomberg, he explains perfectly of what's happening. He writes this, what the servant did in reducing the debtor's account was perfectly legal. He was merely removing the surcharge or commission he would have received for himself. Thus, his master was not out any money rightfully his. The servant himself absorbed the loss. Amends for previous wastage were partially made and the man gained new friends who would care for him after his firing. You see now? He reduced the amount of money, not that was owed to the master, but his portion of the cut that he would have received for trying to collect these amounts, right? He took the amount, he absorbed the cost, he suffered the loss, not his master. And by doing this, he did two things. Number one, he made some new friends. You know why? Because the amount of debt that these guys owed was so unaffordable, so overwhelming that they were stressed out, unable to sleep, overwhelmed, and having this debt over them like this. But now that this servant willingly said, you know what, just take out my portion, right? And then pay off the rest. That's now affordable to them. Now they can have this no longer weighing over their heads. They're free, right? And now they're going to say, you know what, man? Because I know you're, you're, you're giving up a lot, Hey, come to me if you ever need any help. If you need a place to stay, come to my house, right? And that's the second part that this guy did. That's what made his shrewdness so genius. Because by willingly forfeiting what he would get, putting himself in a vulnerable position to where he sacrificed what he could have made, right? He now put himself in a position to where people would start caring about him. By him not caring about himself, he put himself in a position where others would care about him. And you see, that is shrewdness. That's the kind of shrewdness that God wants us to have as followers of his. You're still confused? Still don't get it? 
Let me try one more time. In his book, Shrewd, author Rick Lawrence explains what makes a person a shrewd person. He writes this, shrewd people never come out of a situation with less than what they went in. Never. And that's because they're typically not living their lives bouncing from one reaction to the next. They're the accidental contemplatives. They slow down and pay attention to what surrounds them. You have to do that if you're always studying how things work. Simply put, shrewd people are peculiar in that they have an abnormal affinity for detail, allowing them to make reasoned assumptions about people that are most often in the ballpark. And because they understand more fully than others, the unique patterns and eccentricities and motivations of the people around them, their knowledge allows them to apply the right force in the right place at the right time. What's he saying? A shrewd person is a person who pays attention, knows the details, right? Someone who is like Sherlock Holmes. He looks at something and he's able to extrapolate all this information that is right on. But notice, He doesn't simply talk about knowing things generally, but specifically knowing people. A shrewd person is someone who knows how to read people. He pays attention. He knows what makes them tick. He knows what would scare them, what would excite them, what would inspire them. He's able to just kind of know how a person would react, how a person would emote, how a person would process things to where he can anticipate with razor-sharp precision how they would respond and therefore be ready to get that response out of them, right? That's a shrewd person. Now, let me ask you, are any of you in here like that? Any of you in here like that? The answer, of course you are. All of you in here are like that. Ever heard of Facebook stalking? Huh? Don't act like you don't know what oh, what's that, right? You ever kind of Google your favorite K-drama stars or, or some celebrity that you find attractive, some movie that you see? Why is it that people all the time always want to Google and find out every nitty-gritty things of their favorite celebrities or their favorite actors or musicians to where they care about things like, oh, what do they eat for breakfast? What kind of yoga do they practice? Who are they dating? You know, where do they go for vacation? What kind of clothes they wear? Or why is it that we read newspapers and magazines that devote an entire issue profiling some famous celebrity or some powerful politician or some influential CEO or to find out who the 50 most beautiful people are in America today, right? Why do we care to know these things? Why do we want to know the nitty-gritty, the details, and pay such close attention to such people? The answer is because there's something about them that draws your attention to them, right? There's something about them that is so attractive in your eyes that it brings out a shrewdness in you. But here's the thing. If we're brutally honest, the things that these people have that make you so attracted to them are usually what? Money or the things that you can get with money, right? Status, beauty, power, fame. Am I right? Now, here's the thing. Just because you're attracted to somebody doesn't mean that you care about them, right? It is totally possible to be attracted to a person and yet not care about them whatsoever, right? And that's what the shrewd person we typically think of does. These kinds of shrewd people, they'll be attracted to a person like the way a predator is attracted to their prey. They see something about them to where they want to know every detail, know every background information, know everything about that makes this person tick so that what? They could ultimately devour them. They can take something that they have and make it their own so that they can be advantaged, so that they can indulge, right? 
In other words, shrewd people are attracted to people that they can use, to take something they find valuable from them. And that's the kind of shrewdness Jesus says, no, no, no. You cannot have that kind of shrewd behavior in your life. But you're like, wait a minute, PJ. You just said that Jesus tells us to follow the example of this shrewd manager. And that's exactly what he did, right? Didn't he kind of calculate and figure out who these debtors were so that ultimately he can get something for himself, namely living in their homes rent-free, right? You're just contradicting yourself. What do you have to say to that? I have to say, you need to read verse 9. Read again what he says in verse 9. And I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Now, this is a very hard verse to understand because it's not well written in English. So let me read you a clearer translation that is more smooth and better to comprehend. Listen to this. Here's the lesson. Use your worldly resources to benefit others and make friends. Then when your possessions are gone, they will welcome you to an eternal home. Much better. Because now we understand what Jesus is saying here, right? Which is what? He's basically saying this. Use the resources God has given you right here, right now on earth, whether it be your, your talents, your time, your money, your social networks, your privileges that you've been given that other people don't have, use all of it in such a way that you bless other people to where they would want to welcome you later on into their homes. But not just normal homes, not any home, but what kind of homes? Eternal homes, right? What's an eternal home? <laughs> you ever heard of an eternal home? It's the home according to Jesus, that God's people will have in heaven, right? You know how Jesus says, I'm leaving to prepare a place for you. In my Father's kingdom, there are many mansions where I will play, prepare a place for you. That's what Jesus is talking about here. So basically, he's saying, make <clears throat> yourself a source of blessing to the people around you to where they want to be your friends, not only till the day you die, but even after you're dead, you will still be friends with them because when they're in heaven with you, they want to invite you into their internal dwellings and vice versa. You will invite them into your eternal dwellings. In other words, Jesus is saying, use your resources here and now to make friends of heaven. That's what he's saying. Use your earthly resources so that you can make friends of heaven. People who will come with you into the eternal kingdom of God where you can be in community with, where they would invite you into their homes and you would invite them into your home. Okay, that's what he is saying. Now, by putting it this way, what does this tell us in terms of the types of people we're to be shrewd with, right? Who are the people that we are to pay attention to and, and to be drawn to, to where we would want to share these resources to where they could be advantaged? Kind of like the way our culture is shrewd towards the rich, the powerful, and the beautiful. Who is it? It's not the rich, right? It's not the powerful. It's not the beautiful, just the opposite. Think about it. The rich, the powerful, the beautiful, they already have all resources, right? Probably better than the resources that we currently have. But if you look at the people who are not powerful, if you look at the people who are not rich, the people who are ugly, who are plain, right? They don't have resources that we have, right? And Jesus says, you need to be shrewd. You need to be drawn to them with clear, shrewd-like attention so that, not that you can advantage yourself and further indulge in life, but that you can use the resources that you have to advantage them, even if that means you cannot indulge as much as you wish you could in this life. That's what Jesus is saying. That's the kind of shrewdness that we are to develop. But here's my question, NCF. 
When you think about the people that you tend to be drawn to, that you want to know more about, you want to get the 411 on, right? These people still use that phrase, right? That you still want to get no, no more details about. Is it people like that? Or is it people who are the rich, who are the famous, who are the beautiful? People that you wish that you could know a little bit more about so that maybe you could acquire what they have so that you could better indulge in life, right? When you think about the stories that you want to read, is it about that, that powerful and influential CEO so that you can you know, grasp some of the things that he has and further propel yourself up into a better life and better indulgence? Or is it that you are drawn to people that no one cares about, that no one cares to know, whose story is boring to everybody else, but yet you find attractive because you see it as an opportunity how you can advantage them, how you can bless them with the resources that you have. I'm willing to bet that we're more the former than we are the latter. And that's not good. (laughs) That's very, very bad. Very bad. But here's where we have good news. And to explain, let me go to my final point, the way to develop this type of truth. Skip on down and let's read verse 13 together. No servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one or love the other. He will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Jesus ends this passage with a very interesting explanation between the relationship between God and money. Basically, he says, if you love one, you will hate the other. If you love God, you will not love money. If you love money, you will not love God. And one of the things that we've seen from sociological studies that Jesus is spot on. A couple years ago, the Canadian Broadcast um, Network reported on a study that showed how the trend in societies is that the more affluent they become, the less religious they become. Listen to what it says. As lives gradually become more comfortable and secure, people in more affluent societies usually grow increasingly indifferent to religious values, more skeptical of supernatural beliefs, and less willing willing to become actively engaged in religious institution. Surprise, surprise, Jesus was spot on. And by making this statement in verse 13, the underlying question is so obvious. And the question is basically this. What makes you a better person for this world? The love of God or the love of money? Hmm? What makes the world better off when the people who live in it love God or love money? That's the underlying question behind it. Now, here's the thing, since we're talking about love. One of the weird things that we notice when people love somebody is that they end up loving the things that that somebody already loves. For example, um, my brother, I uh, lives in Seattle now, but you know, he grew up in Philly, which means he's a crazy Eagles fan. Right? And I don't mean that lightly. He really is. He really is one of those guys that you would see on TV after the you know, Eagles win the Super Bowl. He would be one of those guys who would like loot and, and, and vandalize. He's one of those guys. He's a true Philly fan. Okay. And here's the thing. When I was in my master's program, in Philadelphia, uh, he met uh, his girlfriend, who is now uh, his wife, my sister-in-law. And my sister-in-law, you know, came from Korea, you know, like six months prior to meeting him, you know. And so she did not know who the Eagles were. She did not know what football was. She thought it was another name for soccer, okay. And so she wasn't a real big fan of Eagles, and he was a huge fan. He still is, right? So 
as you know, the Eagles won the Super Bowl recently, right? And so I'm on Facebook, and I see my sister-in-law. She's like going crazy, like, E-A-G-L-E-S, Eagles, Eagles. It's like going crazy. She's like naming all these stars. I'm like, what in the world happened? How did you transform into being a complete ignorant person when it came to the Eagles, let alone football, into becoming this, this expert knowledge and, 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 and to the point of loving Eagles as much as my brother? Well, that's the dynamic of love, right? When you love somebody, you love the things that they love, right? Here's the question. Who does God love? Who are the people that God gravitates towards? Who are the people that God is drawn to, to where he has such shrewdness, where he wants to know everything there is to know about that person, to where he can really be engaged and be involved in their lives? You know who they are? It's the nobodies of the world, the insignificant, the losers right? The nobodies. I mean, listen to how God tells Israel as to why he chose them to be his chosen nation. Out of all the nations he could have made his chosen people, he tells Israel why he chose them. This is Deuteronomy chapter 7, starting in verse 7. It says, the Lord did not set his heart on you and chose you because you were more numerous than other nations, for you were the smallest of all nations. Rather, it was simply that the Lord loves you. Can you imagine if you're, you know, a Jew and you feel like, oh yeah, we're God's chosen people. And God says, you know why I chose you? It's because you're a bunch of nobodies. You're, you're, you're insignificant. You're a bunch of losers. That's why I love you. And you're like, oh, okay. And yet that's who God is drawn to. He's drawn to the nobodies, the insignificant, the unpopular, the not pretty, the powerless, the widow, the orphan, the immigrant, the illegal immigrant. He gravitates towards people like that. And here's the thing. If you love God, you will love those whom he loves, right? But if you love money, which means you won't love God and hence you won't love those whom God loves, who are you going to love instead? The complete opposite of those kinds of people, right? The rich, the beautiful, the successful, the elite the ones who take everything else from everybody else to have more for themselves, right? And so we come back to the question, who makes you a better person? The love of God or the love of money? You know, what kind of people would the world, if it could talk, want for its inhabitants? People who love God or love money. You see, the underlying principle that Jesus is trying to teach in this parable is that when you love God, the world is better off. When you love money, the world is worse off. Do you see? But here's the thing. When you love God, you love those that he loves. You love to the point where you're shrewd, to where you are so drawn, you're attracted to that nameless nobody, to that unpopular person, to that unattractive person who's always sitting by themselves, to that person who is so isolated and never notices the background character. It's so weird. As I've grown in my faith, one of the things that I've always noticed, whenever I, I watch you know, a performance by a musician or something, for some reason, I always get drawn to the background singers. You know? Whether I'm watching a, you know, don't judge me, if I'm watching like a Taylor Swift video, right? Or if I'm watching, you know, you know I don't know, you know, a Kelly Clarkson video, as much as I'm drawn to the, the, the front singer, I'm always wondering, who's that background singer? It's the weirdest thing that's developed in my life, right? Or if I see, you know, dancers in the background, 
and the celebrity's all doing his move. I'm always like, who's that background dancer? I wonder what their story is like. There's something about the way God works in us to where all of a sudden we're drawn to the world, or excuse me, we're drawn to people that the world completely ignores. The way that you develop the kind of shrewdness that God wants us to develop is by loving God because that's the only way you're going to love those whom God loves. But then it begs the question, how do we love God so that we would love those whom he loves? By believing the gospel, right? The gospel. What is the gospel? The gospel is the good news that says God loves you with his merciful love. Again, the gospel is the good news that says God loves you with his merciful love. What do I mean? It means this. Even though you were powerless against the desire to sin, God loved you. It means even though you had poor character because you were powerless against the desire to sin, God loves you. Even though it means you are absolutely unattractive because of your poor character, because you were powerless against the desire to sin, God loves you. You see, the gospel says that God notices and he loves those that the world rejects. And really, the kinds of people he should reject because of his holiness. God should have looked at every single one of us in this room and see our powerless attempt to overcome sin and say, wow, you're so pathetic. Get out of my sight. He had every right to condemn us for our unattractive character that's a stench to him, as I said to the kids earlier, right? And just reject us, but he doesn't. He had every right to condemn us for the way that we have conducted ourselves by being unfaithful, and yet he doesn't. He accepts us through Jesus Christ, right? By dying on the cross, he forgives us of our sins and he cleanses us. But here's what's so crazy. When God chose to do that, he came in a certain form, right? Do you remember how God came into the world as? Did he come in as this beautiful, chiseled celebrity guy who was a valiant military hero and a powerful potence and king? What does Isaiah 53 say in terms of how God came into the world as Jesus? There was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance, nothing to attract us to him. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with deepest grief. We turned our backs on him, looked the other way. He was despised and we did not care. When God arrived into the world, the most powerful, the most beautiful, the most wealthy being of all, with the greatest status of all, came into the world as a powerless, ugly, unimpressive person. Why? so that he could be immediately with those that he's been shrewd for, for eternity. That's who our God is. That's the kind of people that he is shrewd towards. Here's the question. Is that where you're at, NCF? When you look at the people who you naturally gravitate towards, to where you want to find out every possible detail, where you want to know everything there is to know, to where you're just so drawn and so curious, to where it's almost like you know them better than they know themselves, right? Who are they? I had the weirdest experience um, when I went to a church conference the other day. Um, not the other day, but a few months back. I went to this conference for pastors, and I met this young man. And, um, you know, he, you know, 
one of the guys who brought me to the conference introduced me to this person. And before I could say anything, the guy said, oh, Pastor John, how are you? Yes, you're the lead pastor of NCF. I know you meet at St. John's. You know, I know you have, you know, four kids and, you know, your social security. No, he didn't do that. But he basically knew a lot of stuff. And I was very uncomfortable, right? The guy was shrewd. The guy knew every detail there is to know. Why? Because he was drawn to what in his eyes was success, right? Who are we kidding? But yet that's the way he operated, right? He didn't know the struggling church planter sitting next to me, right, that no one else knew about. He only knew, you know, the pastors or, or, or the ones who made it or the ones who were making it or whatever. That's not the kind of shrewdness that we are to live out. What kind of shrewdness are you living out? Because you're all shrewd. The question is, who are you shrewd towards? At this time, I want to end this message um, by giving you some practical next steps. The first always being this. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, but today's message or even accumulation of messages that you've been hearing, either here or somewhere else, has compelled you to want to accept Christ, please take this time to pray and ask God to receive you as his own because of what Jesus has done. And then afterwards, come talk to me. I would love to help you begin your journey of faith. Number two, take some time this week, maybe 30 minutes. Ask yourself the following questions. Do I believe I have to one day give an account to God for how I use the resources that I have? Or am I shrewd with the right kinds of people, the poor, the plain, the powerless, so that I can figure out how best to help them flourish? You know, if your answer is no to those questions, this is the time of repentance. This is the time where we go to God and say, Lord, I'm off. And I need you to help me realign my shrewdness to not fixate on the rich, the powerful, the beautiful, the successful, but I need to focus on those whom you are shrewd with, right? People like me, people that no one else notices, okay? And then go into your Oikos group, brainstorm together and come up with two practical things that you can do either as a group or as individuals to where you can answer yes to these questions. Maybe it could be cutting out one takeout meal a week and using that financial resource that you can either use at that moment or build up for a year and donate it or use it for ministry purposes or give up one Oikos group meeting a month and serve a need of this city, help out with a church that is doing some great work in the city or a parachurch organization that is doing something to where it's really being shrewd to the nobodies of this world or come up with something else. But the point is, is that one of the things that God has called us to be as a church is he's called us to be shrewd. He's called us to pay attention to those that no one pays attention to. But the question is, are you paying attention? Are you aware of the attention that Jesus has given to you so that you can pay better attention? Let's pray. 